I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Kill us if you got the chance. I love the smell of nightclub in the morning. Few directors have come anywhere near the blistering success achieved by Francis Ford Coppola. Certainly, no other American director, living or dead, has ever matched his combined and consecutive artistic, commercial and technical triumphs of the 1970s. Working across several genres, Coppola won five Oscars, was nominated another seven times, broke box office records with The Godfather, wrote, produced and directed a sequel that surpassed the original, was honoured with the DGA for those two films, the WGA three times, and the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival not once, but twice, first with his mystery, The Conversation, and again in 1979 with Apocalypse Now, which surely marks the zenith of a monumental career. Apocalypse Now is a radical adaptation of one of the most venerated works in all of English literature, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Conrad had first presented his story in serial form in 1899, before publishing it in 1902 as part of a collection called Youth, a narrative and two other stories. That Conrad did not name the collection Heart of Darkness and two other stories indicates he felt it was the minor piece. Yet that story was immediately hailed by critics as the major work. Hugh Clifford, writing in the November edition of The Spectator, declared, Never has any writer until now succeeded in bringing the reason, and the ghastly unreason, of it all home to sheltered folks, as does Mr. Conrad in this wonderful, this magnificent, this terrible beauty. It's impossible through words to describe what is necessary to those who do not know what horror means. The it to which Clifford was referring was white imperialism, specifically Belgium's colonization of the Congo that manifested a racial supremacy and lethal brutality, the scale and likes of which humankind had never seen before. Despite all the praise, Conrad and his critics suspected, correctly as it turned out, that his novel would not find a wide readership. And indeed, it was not until after his death in 1924 that Heart of Darkness's reputation began to extend beyond literary circles. In 1939, that reputation made it all the way to Hollywood. That was the year Orkayo Studios lured Orson Welles with an unprecedented contract granting him complete artistic control over any picture he wanted to make. Wells wanted to adapt Heart of Darkness. He had already successfully dramatised it on his radio show the year before. The coast was the edge of a colossal jungle, so dark green as to be almost black. The sun was fierce. The land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Here and there, greyish-white specks showed up, clustered inside the white surf with a tin shed and a flagpole. And all around, jungle. For the film, Wells knew he had to turn Conrad's words into pictures. And Conrad's words were tricky. 
As it turned out, they proved too tricky, even for Wells. Because, while Conrad's novel runs for a tight 130 pages, Wells' script sprawled across 174. Realising he could not make it work, the Wunderkind eventually switched his attention to something else. You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. The idea to transpose the story to the Vietnam War came when screenwriter John Milius was but an ambitious student at the University of Southern California in the mid-1960s. Here is Milius recounting the impetus to adapt the book. I really didn't think I would ever have a career in the cinema. I really thought I would have a military career. So when it came to making a story about Vietnam, uh, the other factor that came into this was my writing teacher, Erwin Blacker, was this very, very tough kind of guy that everybody was afraid of. So, of course, one of the things he said is he discussed Heart of Darkness. And Heart of Darkness is, was one of the great stories of, of all English literature, and it's stumped every, every great writer, all these great writers, and it beat Orson Welles. He couldn't do it. And I thought, well, I should go back and read it. And I said, no, no, I, I don't want to read it again because I remember it as if it were a dream. And I want to read it, I want, I want to have it always be that kind of dream. If I go back and I see it too exactly, I probably will screw it up. Milius radically wove Conrad's plot into another great journey from another great literary work, Homer's Odyssey. Reshaping Conrad's Marlowe as Ulysses, Milius turned the Cyclops into a colonel obsessed with surfing, the Fatal Sirens into Playboy Bunnies, and as for the boat that in the book Conrad named Nelly, in Milius' script he renamed it Erebus, after the Greek god of, yes, darkness. Quite fitting, because Colonel Kurtz's compound turns out to be Hades. I've seen horrors, horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. The making of the film is legendary, and George Hickenlooper's documentary, Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, brilliantly chronicles many of the catastrophes that beset the production. But while knowing those setbacks can deepen one's admiration for Coppola, not just managing to complete the film, but create one of cinema's most astonishing achievements. Those production stories don't give any insight into why the film works. For that, we need to figure out how it communicates its content. Its content is more than just war. Coppola said he wanted the film to be a sensorial experience, leaning towards the hallucinatory, psychedelic and surreal, which meant it had to be visually rich. Coppola had long been an admirer of Italian cinematographer Vittorio Storaro, who had, in 1970, lit one of cinema's modern landmarks, The Conformist. Here is Storaro explaining how he approached Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, for me, was trying to translate that conflict between two different nations, the two different cultures, two different civilities, through a conflict of lights, lights and shadows, between two different energies, the natural energy and artificial energy through a warm color and cold color and so on. Put in conflict something that was not supposed to be in conflict. 
Given the visual ambition, Coppola knew it would have to be matched by an equally ambitious soundscape. It is one thing to see Apocalypse now, it is quite another to hear it. In fact, so ambitious and so innovative was the sound design that it paved the way for an entirely new sound system. Here is Ewan Allen of Dolby Sound Systems. Significant that Apocalypse Now was one of the very first, in fact, the first announced film to have a stereo surround format, which uh, we tentatively call split surround or stereo surrounds. It really is the great grandfather or the grandfather of what today is on almost every film release and every DVD release, which is known as 5.1 sound, which 5.1 channels are three channels behind the screen, left surround, right surround, and a subwoofer channel, which is the point one. Here is the film's editor and sound designer, the three-time Oscar winner, Walter Murch. What we would do, for instance, would be to manipulate the density of sound. So that sometimes what you were looking at would be very simple pictorially, but you'd hear a very dense soundtrack. And other times, the opposite of that. You would be seeing explosions going off, but the sound would not be that. It would be something else entirely. Captain, where are you going? See if I can find some fuel, get some information. Pick me up the other side of the bridge. Somebody go with him. Yeah, I'll go. I want to go. Coppola is a graduate of UCLA, and shortly before securing his degree, he met a student just enrolling in the film department, one Jim Morrison. When prepping the film, Coppola initially wanted to score the entire picture with music exclusively by The Doors. But after he had viewed the first cut of the film, he and his colleagues agreed that the band's songs narrowed the film's texture. Coppola didn't want narrow, he wanted width, so he called in his father, Carmine. Although a classically trained composer, Carmine brought in avant-garde musicians to create a unique mixture of primitive rhythms and orchestral recordings, all filtered through synthesizers. But such technological innovation and ambition counts for naught unless it feeds into the film's themes and overall meaning. So why was Coppola reaching for those elements? I think it can be best summed up by examining the opening sequence in the film. Randy Thome was a mere apprentice when he recorded sounds for the movie. A future Oscar winner, it was the first feature film Thome ever worked on. The whole beginning of the movie is Captain Bullard's point of view. You hear this helicopter circling around you. And for a long time, I was thinking, why is this helicopter synthesized? You know, we went out and we recorded helicopters. And it didn't occur to me for a while that the reason to use a synthesized helicopter is that's the way Captain Willard is hearing it. And that's his brain we're listening to. And that is the key to understanding what Coppola hoped to convey. Coppola wanted a sensorial experience to indicate how we enter into war, into the heart of darkness. Apocalypse Now suggests a moral vacuum occurs when our senses begin to decay. Note how often the different senses are referenced in the film, not just seeing and hearing, but taste as well. Sure. Yes, sir. How come they call you that? Call me what, sir? Sure. Did you like mangoes and stuff? 
No, sir. I'm a real chef. I'm a saucier. A lavish meal is laid out at the French plantation. And then, of course, you have the smells. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And touch. I couldn't see him yet, but I could feel him. As if the boat were being sucked up river and the water was flowing back into the jungle. And then there is the presence of drugs. Hey, you know that last tub of acid I was saving? Yeah. I dropped it. You dropped acid? Far out. All to heighten the experience. But such sensorial overload results in aesthetic decay. Now, I don't mean aesthetic as in beautiful. The proper meaning of aesthetic refers to the senses. And what is the opposite of aesthetic? Not ugliness, but anaesthetic. And what does an anaesthetic do? It dulls the senses. This is the end, beautiful friend. The movie has just started, and already it's the end. It is the apocalypse. The image is of the world on fire. And that opening shot is in fact lifted from the napalm attack in the middle of the movie. So the beginning is the end is the middle simultaneously. And so disorientating is it that everyone comes away psychologically damaged. In fact, Willard doesn't come away at all. Listen to the film's final words. When a film deploys a narrator, it's usually the narrator who closes out the story. But not here. Here it is Kurtz. But how can Kurtz be speaking? He is already dead. Willard has killed him. As Randy Thome explained, what we are hearing is from inside Willard's head. After Kurtz's words, Willard mysteriously goes silent. And that silence begs the question, where does Willard go? Ever since Homer's Odyssey, all stories touched by war seek the same ending, a return home. Hollywood cinema is no different. From King Vidor's The Big Parade, Howard Hawks's Sergeant York, William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives, and on through to Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, Oliver Stone's Platoon, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, and Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, they all embrace a homeward journey. Apocalypse Now offers no such hope. And in that respect, Coppola delivered a war movie that approaches upon the real horror dreaded by every soldier. A war that never ends, because you are forever fighting it inside your own head. The final images have Willard getting into the boat and heading not downstream, but upstream, further, into the heart of darkness. Oh. Oh. 